People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is the book show, People of the Book. I've got a full show with a number of really important books to discuss. And then at half past 12, we'll be, half past 11, we'll be joined in studio by Tracy Schweizer from Jonathan Ball Publishers. And all the titles that I'm going to speak about for the next half an hour are on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. I've added something new. Uh, there's pictures of the front cover of all of the books, plus the authors of the book's faces, so you can see the person who wrote the book. There also is, in a separate post, a short blurb about each of the books that we're going to read. And then the first book I'm going to start off with, The Four by Scott Galloway. I've also posted a YouTube video where he's talking about this book. So once you've heard about it on the show, you can watch that clip on our Facebook page, and then you can run out to the shop to get what I think is most probably the most important business book of the year. Scott Galloway is a professor at New York University in business and he also is the he works for a, his own consulting company, he consults businesses and in the book he also writes that he had a, for a, for a short time he was on the board of the New York Times trying to use his knowledge of Business in the 21st century to salvage the New York Times, one of the great institutions of, medi- of American media, and bring them into the 21st century. I also have a copy of his book, The Four, to give away. So listen, we'll be opening the lines for a winner in a few moments once we've discussed what the book's about. The Four are the four most powerful companies in the world today. They are Facebook, Google, Amazon and Apple. And in calling them the four, he's trying to bring in the image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse because he really does believe that these companies have that power within their grasp. And the book is a very, very, very sharp uh, analysis and critique of these four companies. And uh, a lot of a lot is thrown into the into the three hundred and so pages of the book. Just to start off with the very beginning, over the last twenty years, four technology giants have inspired more joy, connections, prosperity, and discovery than in any than any entity in history. Along the way, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google have created hundreds of thousands of high-paying jobs. The four responsible for an array of products and services that are entwined into the daily lives of billions of people. They've put a supercomputer in your pocket, are bringing the internet into developing countries, and are mapping the Earth's land mass and oceans. The four have generated unprecedented wealth, $2.3 trillion, that via stock ownership has helped millions of families across the planet build economic security. In sum, they make the world a better place. The above is true, and this narrative is espoused repeatedly across thousands of media outlets and gatherings of the innovation class, universities, conferences, congressional hearings, and boardrooms. However, consider another view. Imagine a retailer that refuses to pay sales tax, treats its employees poorly, destroys hundreds of thousands of jobs, and yet is celebrated as a paragon of business innovation. 
a computer company that withholds information about a domestic act of terrorism from federal investigators with the support of a fan following that views the firm similar to a religion. A social media firm that analyzes thousands of images of your children activates your phone as a listening device and sells this information to Fortune 500 companies. An ad platform that commands in some markets a 90% share of the most lucrative sector in media, yet avoids anti-competitive regulation through aggressive litigation and lobbyists. This narrative is also heard around the world, but in hushed tones. We know these companies aren't benevolent gods, yet we invite them into the most intimate areas of our lives. We willingly divulge personal updates, knowing they'll be used for profit. Our media elevate the executives running these companies to hero status, geniuses to be trusted and emulated. Our governments grant them special treatment regarding antitrust regulation, taxes, even labor laws. And investors bid their stocks up, providing near-infinite capital and firepower to attract the most talented people on the planet or crush adversaries. So are these entities the four horsemen of God, love, sex and consumption? Or are they the four horsemen of the apocalypse? The answer is yes to both questions. However, for the purpose of this book, we'll refer to them as the four horsemen. How do these companies aggregate so much power? How can an inanimate for-profit enterprise become so deeply ingrained in our psyche that it reshapes the rules of what a company can do and be? What does unprecedented scale and influence mean for the future of business and the global economy? Are they destined, like business titans before them, to be eclipsed by younger, sexier rivals? Or have they become so entrenched that nobody, individual, enterprise, government, or otherwise, stands a chance? This is the book, The Four, uh, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google by Scott Galloway. It is a very urgent read in the world of business and also the psychology behind these companies gets to the very, very, very core reason why the four have become so much a part of our lives. I'd say as a business book, it's most probably one of the most important business books of the year. And that's the four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Now, we've got a copy of the four from the publishers uh, to give away. It's published by Penguin Random House, specifically by Bantam Press Imprint. And to win a copy of the four, all you need to do is to SMS us on um, 010, sorry, um, SMS us on 34519. That's 34519. Or you can WhatsApp us. Our WhatsApp number is 074. Six five four seven three three five. That's our on air number, or just SMS us on three four five one nine. Now, the next book that I'm going to speak about is most probably the most important book of the year. It is the book uh, that has inspired a fortune of uh, news headlines in South Africa. Questions in Parliament yesterday. It is a book that I think has already sold out its first or it's it's already been it's 
print, 20,000 copies were printed on its first printing and it's gone back into printing for another 10,000 copies. It's Jacques Poe's The President's Keepers, those keeping Zuma in power and out of prison. It's explosive. I've started reading it. I only got a copy during the course of this week and uh, it is riveting. Uh, we'll be talking about it next week as well. There's a book launch this coming week at Hard Park, uh, where Jacques Poe will be in Johannesburg to launch the book, but it is available already. Uh, I'm reading it almost, uh, here. It's, it keeps you up. There is, just for today, I'm just going to read a few things that I've actually highlighted in my copy of the book just to give you a, a feeling. The book starts off with look at how the intelligence community in South Africa has been compromised by Jacob Zuma. Uh, horrific stuff. Uh, and I'll read a few brief extracts out of the book. This is The President's Keepers, Those Keeping Zuma in Power and Out of Prison by Jacques Poets, published by Tafelbach. Our first, um, our first excerpt will be straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. So I'm reading a few underlined extracts from The President's Keepers, Jacques Poe. I think this book has been excerpted by every major news outlet that isn't in the Zuma camp. This is from the part of the book that talks about the compromising of the intelligence community in South Africa, the government intelligence agencies. During the writing of this book, this is Jacques Poe writing, I sat down with a top-level intelligence guru who has intimate knowledge of the major role players in this saga, Jacob Zuma, Siabonga Kwele, and Arthur Fraser. Did you really think that anything was ever going to happen to Arthur? He asked me. Now, Arthur Fraser became the head of all of South African intelligence under Zuma's, uh, under Zuma's patronage. Back to the book. Did you think that JZ was going to sacrifice him? No way. There is something that you must understand about the president. It is all about how useful you are to him. And Arthur is very useful. I think he was always going to be JZ's intelligence chief. As my source said, Fraser went to Zuma and said, Sir, there's big trouble here. Lots of secret things are going to be compromised. Zuma instructed Querley to look after Fraser. A strategy was devised to circumvent other law enforcement agencies and deliver the findings of Engelkers and Mayring to Faith Radebi, who they knew would kill everything. This is the investigations into what was really a rogue unit within the South African intelligence services. Then he goes on to talk about the very famous Sunday Times fake news exposure about a rogue unit in SARS. I mean, for pot calling the kettle black in this situation over here takes the meaning to absolute surreal levels of meaning. Now the quote, the campaign against the SARS rogue unit was driven by elements in the SSA, and you will read much more about it later in this book. Suffice it to say that for now, the stories in the Sunday Times were absolute lies, but they were integral to the destruction of the most effective law enforcement organization in the country, SARS. There was no rogue unit, and the campaign was unleashed to stop SARS from investigating Jacob Zuma and his cronies, among others. I have little doubt that SARS new rulers would have ensured that the audit profiles compiled against Arthur Fraser, John Galloway, Prince Makwa Tana, and several others 
were erased from the SARS mainframe. And that SARS rogue unit was the subject of a book written last year that we reviewed on the show, Rogue, by Johann von Locherenberg, who's also mentioned here in the book quite a bit as well. Then here we have when Zuma was in exile, he rose to the head of the ANC's intelligence organizations. Details are scant for for these 15 years, and maybe for good reason. Zuma's predilection for secrecy might come from the need to conceal his alleged complicity in the deaths of MK Kadra's Tami Zulu and Cyril Raymond, who were tortured and murdered while in Zuma's care. The book goes on to explain what exactly happened. This is the end of that section. Books have been written and newspapers have been filled with revelations around Zuma's alleged corruption. The only reason why I use the word alleged is that he has not yet been convicted. The evidence is compelling and devastating. Yet, when asked in an interview whether he is crooked, Zuma said, me? Well, I don't know. I must go to a dictionary and learn what a crook is. I have never been a crook. This is a small taste. The book is The President's Keeper, Those Keeping Zuma in Power and Out of Prison. I will be re-looking at it in the next few weeks again because it is so explosive. Max Dupree, who's worked with the author Jacques Poe in investigative journalism, says on the front cover, this is dynamite. It really is. The book's selling out fast. Who knows? Maybe the government's going to try pull the book from distribution so go get your copy as soon as you finish listening to the show because it might not be available uh jacob zuma the master of fake news and not just dodging the truth but hitting the truth over the head with a mallet and trying to just uh, laugh it off has lots of questions to answer jacques poe poses poses them in the book the president's keeper now the next book we're going to talk about this is just a short one. It's a, it's a book called Girl in Snow. It's a debut novel by Danya Kukafka. And it's an addictive debut about the mysterious death of a small town golden girl and the secret lives of three people connected to her. The social misfit who loved her from afar, the rebellious girl who despised her, and the policeman investigating her death. Girl in Snow investigates the razor-sharp line between love and obsession and will thrill fans of Elizabeth is Missing and The Girls. It's intoxicating, intense, and you will keep turning the pages into the early morning hours. As morning dawns in a sleepy Colorado suburb, a dusting of snow covers high school freshman Lucinda Hayes' dead body on a playground carousel. Accusations spread quickly, and Lucinda's tragic death draws three outsiders from the shadows. Oddball Cameron Whitley loved and still loves Lucinda, though they've hardly ever spoken, and any sensible onlooker would call him Lucinda's stalker. Cameron is convinced that he knows her better than anyone. Completely untethered by the news of her death, Cameron's erratic behaviour provides the town ample reason to suspect that he's the killer. Jay Dixon Burns hates Lucinda, Lucinda took everything from her. The worst part was Lucinda's blissful ignorance to the damage she'd wrought. And then Officer Russ Fletcher doesn't know Lucinda, but he knows the kid everyone is talking about, the boy who must have killed her, Cameron Whitley. Cameron Whitley is his ex-partner's son. Now Russ must take a painful journey 
through the past to solve the Cinder's murder and keep a promise he made long ago. This is a book that's one of those like uh, Gone Girl. It's about domestic crime and psychological hijinks. It's available in the shops. It's published by Picador and it's deeply atmospheric. It's compelling. It's beautifully written for a debut novel. It is very, 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 very accomplished. Something worth looking at. The next book I'm going to talk about is a another debut novel. And this one is called My Name is Nobody. It's by Matthew Richardson. What really impressed me about this book is spy thriller. Spy thrillers, you know, there are a dime a dozen. So something really has to shine to make it stand out. The author is 26 years old. Matthew Richardson is very, very young. And at such a young age to have such an insight into the British intelligence agencies and to write such a, a book that has a feeling of such authenticity, but at the same time, the same pool as I Am Pilgrim or Nomad is quite an accomplishment. I read the book and it really keeps you guessing. And it's got all that skullduggery that spa novels should have, but also poses questions in 21st century contemporary society that we do want to ask of intelligence agencies. Solomon Vaughan was the best of his generation, a spine of fast track to the top. But when a prisoner is shot in unexplained circumstances on his watch, only suspension and exile beckon. Three months later, MRS's head of station in Istanbul is abducted from his home. There are signs of a violent struggle. With the service in lockdown, Uncertain of who can be trusted, thoughts turn to the missing man's oldest friend, Solomon Vaughan. Officially suspended, Vaughan can operate outside the chain of command to uncover the truth of what's happened. But his investigation soon reveals that the disappearance heralds something much darker and that there's much more at stake than the life of a single spy. It really is very, very gripping and, as I said, very, very contemporary. And it makes you ask questions of our you know, the world's intelligence services and having mentioned um, the president's keepers and the compromisation of South African's intelligence services it really does bring the whole intelligence community and the work that intelligence agencies da- do in order to keep security really up into your face and really demands these questions. We'll be back with two more books after the ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've got two more books to get through in the show. The first one is The New Anthony Horowitz, which is um, it's an, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a famous author, especially for, 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 for young adults. His uh, series of Alex Ryder novels has gotten a huge readership of young readers. And now he's written a few adult novels. Uh, one of them, two of them actually are continuations of the Sherlock Holmes stories. That's Marathi and the House of Silk. He also wrote Trigger Mortis, which was a continuation of the uh, the James Bond franchise. His new book is a really playful, literary um, uh, police procedural a wealthy woman strangled six hours after she's arranged her own funeral a very private detective uncovering secrets but hiding his own a reluctant author who 
goes in the book is Anthony Horowitz drawn into a story he cannot control. What do they have in common? Unexpected death, an unsolved mystery, and a trail of bloody clues light the heart of The Word is Murder by Anthony Horowitz. And one of the fun things in the book is that he talks about himself as an author and the whole author process submitting manuscripts to publishers and writing. Uh, he's, he's got a few screen credits to his name as well. And he puts all of that in the book. He has a lot of fun. If you are very literary, you'll pick up on all the literary jokes, the names that he gives the different people. The actual story becomes more like a Cluedo game. And it's almost an opportunity for him to wear his literary ambitions on his sleeve and play so many literary tricks on you as the author, the reader. It's great, great, great fun. And it's a very, very uh, light read, but it's at the same time, it's very literary and it's a lot of fun. But the last book that I'm going to talk about right now um, is called Ghosts of the Tsunami. It's by Richard Lloyd Parry. Richard Lloyd Parry is the Times of London's bureau chief in Tokyo. And obviously, if you're calling the book The Ghost of the Tsunami, it is going to be talking about the aftermath of the tsunami in Japan. The book is literary nonfiction, or I suppose what we'd also call narrative nonfiction. And it is, it's been held by many, many reviewers as an absolute instant classic in that genre. Just talking about narrative nonfiction, or literary nonfiction. Next week, I will be playing my interview with Simon Sharma on the radio. He is the author of the so many books, seventeen books, but the two two of his most recent books is the Story of the Jews, Volume One, and now Volume Two, which has just been released in the bookshops. And he is a professor at Columbia University in art and art history, but he lectures narrative nonfiction. Uh, so that's something to look forward to next week. Now, the the book that we're talking about, Ghosts of the Tsunami. Set in Japan, because of its harsh climate and remoteness from the center of Japan, Tohoku, which is in Japan's northeastern region, has long been regarded as the country's backwater. Along with that reputation comes a set of unflattering stereotypes about its people. Rather than speaking their minds, they grit their teeth, bottle up their feelings, and go about their business in gloomy silence. But those very traits were seen as an admirable asset in the immediate aftermath of the disaster that hit Tohoku's coastal communities when a magnitude 9 earthquake was followed by a tsunami, then a nuclear meltdown at the Fukushima Daiichi reactors. Journalists reporting from the disaster zone commended the the resilience of Tohoku people, marveling at the restraint demonstrated by survivors, many of whom had lost everything. Uncomplaining, they organized themselves at makeshift evacuation centers. Observers were made to feel that Tohoku was coping. Richard Lloyd Parry's book reminds us, however, that such preconceived ideas about regions and their people are no more than half-truths. The realities existed beneath the surf- other realities existed beneath the surface of post-disaster life. Lloyd Parry, a Tokyo-based Times journalist, as I mentioned, traveled many times to Tohoku in order to understand what was happening there. The result is a compassionate and piercing look at the community's ravaged by the tsunami, which claimed more than 99% of the day's casualties of 18,500, the single greatest loss of life in Japan since the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. One woman interviewed for the book reflects that it was not just lifestyles that were changed, I mean our heads. Since that day, 
everyone has something wrong with them. Lloyd Parry really does focus to quite a degree on the whole idea of the ghosts. Whether one believes in the supernatural is beyond the point. The point, according to one Buddhist priest who exercised many tsunami-induced ghosts, is that people really believed they were seeing them. Tohoku's ghost problem, which was very, very strongly felt after the tsunami, became so pervasive that university academics started cataloging the stories while priests found themselves called on repeatedly to quell unhappy spirits that could, in in extreme cases, possess the living. There's another set of spirits that inhabit the pages of Lloyd Parry's book, the ghosts of Japan's political failures at every level of society, from village communities to local authorities to city and prefectural governments, all the way to the central government in Tokyo that proved unable to respond fully to the disaster. Nothing symbolized such failures better than the case of the Okawa Primary School, whose story is one of the engines powering this book, giving it the character of a finely conceived crime fiction or a psychological drama. Without giving too much away, this tragic, engrossing story is that on the day of the disaster, nine schools were overwhelmed by the tsunami, and of the 75 children who died while at school, 74 were from one school, the Okawa Primary. Their parents wanted to know what accounted for these disturbingly disproportionate odds. After all, there was enough time between the issuing of warnings and the arrival of the tsunami for children at other schools to have been evacuated to higher spots. Official accounts kept changing, and there seemed to be a reluctance to launch a thorough investigation. Grief-stricken and angry, some parents of the dead Okawa children decided to fight back. They filed a lawsuit against the city and prefectural government. These are some of the aspects that Richard Lloyd Parry pulls together in Ghosts of the Tsunami. It's a look at the aftermath of the terrible, terrible 2011 devastation by the earthquake, the tsunami, and the nuclear meltdown in Japan. It's also an absolute brilliant book of literary nonfiction. And Richard Lloyd Parry, who is the Asia editor of the Times of London, has done a remarkable job in bringing this story of all the ghosts of the tsunami to the reading public. So just to look at the books that we've mentioned today, that's Ghosts of the Tsunami by Richard Lloyd Parry. The, the, the Word is Murder, Anthony Horowitz, a very literary game uh, Police Procedural Girl in Snow A Psychological Thriller By debut author My Name is Nobody A Spa Thriller By 26 year old author Matthew Richardson He's got a big career Ahead of him His second book Is already Scheduled for being Released next year We looked at The Four By Scott Galloway That's really the most Important business book About internet companies The four are Apple Amazon, Facebook, and Google, and I've posted a video of Scott Galloway talking about this book, and then the the other book, this is the explosive one, and I'll be talking about it next week and in the future again, because it's just too explosive to keep to one show. It's The President's Keepers, Those Keeping Zuma in Power and Out of Prison by Jacques Poe, published by Tafelberg, and I've just been reminded that this book basically vindicates everything that Johan von Lochrenberg wrote in his book Rogue that came out last year. Rogue is published, it's still available in the shops and together with Jacques Poe's book and with books by other other people who are fighting the rot in the system, they they create a very, very important document of 
what South Africa has endured. So that's Jacques, po, Jacques, Jacques Poe's book, uh, most probably the most explosive political book of the year. And now we have the great pleasure to invite to the studio Tracy from Jonathan Ball. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, as always. Um, and thank you for giving Rogue a bit of a punt next to the President's Keeper, to which we are all running second place at the moment. But I think you're right that all of these books that are being released now about the current political situation do form a whole. And when you read them all together, you have a very clear picture of what it is that is going on in South Africa. Um, Speaking of South Africa, I'm going to start with one of our local books that there's been a lot of media about because she was touring South Africa last week or was it the week beforehand and there were lots of news articles. But if you haven't heard about the book and if you haven't read read it, I'm going to encourage you to. Um, It's Always Another Country, written by Sisonke Msimang. It is the story of her life in exile. She's the daughter of Mavuso Msimang, who was Kosasana Tlamini Usuma's DG when she was still at Home Affairs, and a Swazi mother. She was born in Zambia, but the book tells her story as they traveled around in exile without documents a lot of the time, so from Zambia to Kenya to Canada. Ultimately, she went on to study at an Ivy League university in the States, comes back to South Africa and is now living and lecturing in Australia. Um, so it's a collection of vignettes in all of these places. And what for me is just so special about the book, apart from the story, read it for the stories, but read it for the words The words are so beautiful. You want to get out your pen and paper and you want to write down the sentences. The prose feels like poetry. It feels at times more like a novel than it does an autobiography. And they are these beautiful closed vignettes. And at one of Sisonke's launches, she spoke about what she put in the book and what she left out the book. Um, And it's a very personal look. It's her story. It's filled with laughter. It's filled with music, sadness. Of course, it's filled with some politics. But I loved her description of what she'd put in and what she'd left out. Because how do you describe a life? If you're writing a memoir, what should it include and what should it not? And her description was, it is in the book if it is something that is finished for her, if the circle on that story is completely closed and she knows how she feels about the beginning, the middle and the end of it and it is not something that sits on her chest and worries her late at night. That is how the story ended up in the book. It is so beautiful. Take it away with you. You'll want to read it and reread it. And for I actually, on my third reading, think that I might just read a couple of chapters. Like I'd quite like to read the Kenya chapter again. So very, very beautiful. Always another country by Sisonke Mismang. And do look out for it on the prize lists as we go into next year because I'm I'm sure she's going to be recognized in a broader sense than just by a humble reader like myself. It is extraordinarily beautiful. So that's Sisonke's pink book. And then, because it was such a nice, bright, summery day, I thought I would 
chat about a couple of gardening books, actually. We have one of our new local, well, one of our local gardening superstars, or the local gardening superstar these days, Jane Griffiths, who did Jane's Delicious Garden. Jane's new book has just been released. It's Jane's Delicious A to Z of Vegetables, a guide to growing organic vegetables in South Africa. And it is filled with wonderful tips. It's organized alphabetically by vegetable and in each chapter you'll learn how to grow the vegetable how you can use it in recipes in home remedies what to do with the pests that target that particular vegetable so if you're looking for something to do over the weekend and hopefully we're going to have this beautiful weather continue and you are hoping to do it outside have a look for jane's a to z of veggie gardening and start your own little Veg patch. In fact, she actually has at the back, depending on how many people you have in your house, exactly how many onions you need to grow in order to have a self-sustaining onion garden. So it really is incredibly useful and you just feel Jane's passion for her garden. And I've, I, I, obviously, there are a couple of photos here, but my favorite photos of Jane's garden, she's got a house in Auckland Park, and she's quite high up on the ridge. And when you look at photographs of it in Jane's delicious urban gardening, you look like, you sort of imagine that she must live in Mulder's Drift because it is, there's greenery everywhere. And when you get a long shot of it, you see, the radio tower, the Brixton Tower in the background. So it's this sort of surreal juxtapositioning of the tower. And Jane has strawberries growing from pergolas in her garden. There is literally, there's a fruit or a vegetable or a beautiful scented herb on every surface. Plants grow up the walls. They're growing down from the ceiling. They're in pots. They're in the ground. And she, she's just an absolute superstar. So look out for Jane's delicious A to Z. And then I'm going to move on to some of the international titles that we represent. Um, and to say, firstly, we're thrilled to have won for the third year in the row, or one of the publishers that we represent, to have won for the third year in the row, the Booker Prize, with George Saunders's Lincoln in the Bardo, which I did speak about on one of the previous shows. If you're buying it because it won the Booker, brace yourself because it is an experience. Um, it really is. It's a wild ride of a book, but we're hugely pleased for George. And also to say that we have the Nobel Laureate on our list again this year in Kazuo Ishiguro. His most recent one, Berry Giant, for me is my favorite of his since Remains of the Day. So look out for Berry Giant out there. But the ones that I wanted to talk about today were not necessarily the prize winners, maybe just titles that you wouldn't see on the big Christmas lists, not big names, but wonderful books that might get looked over but shouldn't over the festive season. So the first one is a translation from the Italian called The Temptation to be Happy by Lorenzo Moroni. And it reminded me a little bit, I don't know if anybody remembers years ago, a movie with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt called As Good As It Gets. And the central character in this book reminded me very much of Jack Nicholson's character. He's this 
grumpy old man who lives in a block of flats and he's just cynical and mean about his neighbors, about life, the universe and everything. He's just a grumpy old man. And he's incredibly charming in his grumpiness as you're reading about him. And you are learning about him through a new tenant in this block of flats. And slowly over the course of the book, he rediscovers his happiness, his joy, and it fits very nicely into that 100-year-old man, man called Ove, a lovely read that will make you feel warm and fuzzy when you finish it. So that's the temptation to be happy. And then the next one I wanted to chat about is The Silent Companions by Laura Purcell. This book is launching a whole new imprint within Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury have decided they want to set up an imprint called Raven Books, which will be sort of horror slash thriller. And it's opening with Silent Companions, which is a gothic thriller. It's also going to be, by the way, on our Jonathan Ball Christmas promotion, which you'll start seeing when you go around the shops, the fantastic festive read stickers on books. Have a look at those. If you buy the book, you can send through an SMS and you can win the entire fantastic Festive Reads hamper, which I think is 40-odd books this year. So The Silent Companions is set in a dark and dingy country house in England where a young widow, she's just recently been widowed, heavily pregnant, is sent to sit out her confinement. And it's just, there's a very uncomfortable atmosphere for her from the absolute get-go. The servants are mean, frankly, and the butler is peculiar. And the, her husband's cousin, who is living in the country house, is very strange. She decides she needs to actually keep to herself because it's all all a bit overwhelming. And she passes her days popping into different rooms in the house and exploring. One of these rooms is locked, and she hunts down a key for it eventually, opens the door, and there are diaries from 200 years ago describing the life of a previous inhabitant. And next to the diaries is a carved statue of what appears to be her or if not her, the absolute splitting image of her. So the story goes from there. Wonderful, gothic, gripping, beautifully written. That's, the book's called The Silent Companions. And that's a new imprint by Bloomsbury looking at horror thrillers. We'll be back with more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We, we're talking books. This is People of the Book. And we're speaking to Tracy from Jonathan Wall Publishers. We've got quite a list so far of really interesting books, Always Another Country, a South African memoir, Gardening by Jane Griffiths. We've got two big prize-winning books from Jonathan Ball, um, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, published by Bloomsbury, which won the Booker Prize this year. And then the Nobel Laureate for Literature for 2017 is Kazuo Shiguro. And uh, you can, if you haven't read Remains of the Day, that's his classic. But his most recent book, as mentioned earlier, Buried Giants, uh, Fantasy Britain in the Dark mm. Ages. Then The Temptation to be Happy, uh, a European 
cranky old man finding joy in old age, and then Silent Companions, which is a gothic thriller. We, what more? Um, I'm actually going to jump back to a sort of picture book, Ella Jane's Delicious Garden, because it's the most gorgeous little cookbook. Also on our fantastic Feast of Reads promotion called The Little Library Cookbook. And it's written by a woman called Kate Young. And she has put together recipes based on her or recipes taken from her favorite books where they are mentioned. And I just adore Kate. I've, we obviously have similar bookshelves. She's got... Um, Paddington Bears Porridge, and she has a breakfast that Haruki Marukami mentions in one of his books. She's got recipes from The Secret Garden and Alice in Wonderland and Girl on a Train. and It's just a really fun gift for yourself if you're a reader or if you're looking for a present for an avid reader. You can't go wrong with the little library cookbook. And I, I haven't tried any of the recipes myself because I don't have a good track record in the kitchen. But I intend on my December holidays to make some Murakami miso breakfast soup. This is for literary foodies. It, ultimate gift for literary foodies. Absolutely. What goes better together than books and food? Um, then the next one I want to chat about is Bluebird, Bluebird by Attica Locke, published by Serpent's Tale. Attica... Hugely critically acclaimed author. Um, she's always written about in the literary papers in glowing terms. And it's and well she, deserved. From absolutely. the book that I've read, more than well deserved. Absolutely. Um, Attica's coming out with what will be a new series of books, starting with Bluebird, Bluebird, that are all going to be set along the R59, which is a dusty, forgotten stretch of road in East Texas, where she is from. And she actually, I, she says of Bluebird, Bluebird, that this is her love letter to Black Texas. And they are murder mysteries. They are police procedurals set in East Texas. And in Bluebird, Bluebird, it opens with a white lawyer and a black waitress floating dead in the river behind the sweet shop in a tiny little town in East Texas, which, as I say, is completely off the beaten track. And so the murder mystery unravels. It does touch quite heavily on race issues in America at the moment in that the sheriff of the town is a black man that is complicated in that he's going to question the suspects in very conservative small town Trump Trumpian America is that a word these Trumpian America I'm sure it is with all the fake news flying we can make fake words <laughs> uh, absolutely why not um, in fact, what Attica was saying in one of the interviews I'd listened um, to with her discussing the book she was saying her book changed entirely after Trump was elected, but she hadn't changed an entire word. Um, so, yes, these racial tensions have been simmering, but they've been brought to light by by the new president. That, however, is not what the book is about. And I don't want to sort of make it too political. It is a great thriller. It will sort of occasionally you'll have a sort of little thought of to kill a mockingbird it's it's along it's along those sorts of lines and you can it's it's just a great read and she really is worth picking up and subsequent 
to her first novel. She's been writing the script for Empire, the TV show, and you feel that very much in Bluebird, Bluebird. You feel a greater urgency in the writing, a lot more visually descriptive. You can imagine down the line there being a TV series featuring all these murders along Route 59. I'm not sure if that's her intention, but there is a greater cinematic quality to her writing these days. So do pick up Bluebird, Bluebird. If you see it, you you won't regret it. Attica is an absolute rock star. Then the next one that I briefly wanted to mention was a paperback original that I'd picked up. I think it was published by One World. We represent so many, I sometimes forget. I think The Invisible Life of Eurydice Guzmao um, was published by One World. But... Um, Regardless of who it was published by, it is wonderful, just happy-making novels. So it's sort of, for me, falling into that same category as The Temptation to be Happy. It's set in 1940s Rio, and Eurydice is the younger daughter of a upper-middle-class Brazilian family. And her elder sister is a bit of a wild child, and she elopes with her boyfriend, um, they never actually do end up getting married and the relationship dissembles and the younger sister comes back. But as a result of her sister's elopement and her parents' great disappointment, because this was not what they had dreamed for their darling daughter, um, Eurydice decides that she is going to follow the rules because her sister broke them. So she marries a man who is, well, he's just a staid, dull sort of man, who the the right sort of man. And all of her dreams and hopes for her life were put on hold as her very steady, stable, dull husband crushes her spirit daily until her younger sister comes back into the house and they're trying desperately to rediscover their passion. So she starts making clothes. She starts cooking. It's it's wonderful story about friendships. It's got such a strong sense of time and place in Rio in 1940 and it will just make you feel joyful and you will love Eurydice Guzmao she will stay with you for a long time we've got a few more books to add after this ad break People of the Book on 101.9 High FM Hey, we're in the last five minutes of People of the Book. We're looking at a whole long list of really great books from uh, Jonathan Ball Publishers. Tracy's in the studio, and she's sharing every single one of them. Sounds just the type of book that you've got to get on your book uh, your book club list, or otherwise buy for yourself and start cooking up a literary storm. Yes, goodness, I'm, I'm sort of jumping all over the show today. That's See, what you I'm like sort of about feeling. book shows. You, know, you <laughs> yes. have a wide range of everything. From the sublime to the ridiculous. Well, speaking of, the next book that I'm going to tell you about is about cows and cows' secret lives. Now, it's a tiny little hardback published by Faber and Faber um, that was originally published in the UK by a teeny tiny publisher, teeny tiny print run went out of print and Alan Bennett found a copy of it in a second hand shop and he went straight through after finishing reading it he went straight through to the Faber office and he said I'm sorry you have to buy rights to this and you absolutely have to publish it um, and because he's Alan Bennett of course they did uh, not really they did read it and they did love it uh, it is a little book called The Secret Life of Cows by Rosamond Young now 
Rosamond has a cattle farm and has spent an awful amount of time on her farm watching the cows. In fact, there is a cow cam. You can go onto YouTube and look for Rosamond Young's cow cam. Uh, But what has emerged in her deep engagement with her beloved cows that do end up in abattoirs at the end of the day, but she tries to give them a beautiful, wonderful, happy life while she can. But what has emerged is that these cows have such wonderful individual personalities and they they like to do things like play hide and seek with each other. Uh, there is one cow who is the sort of farm junkie who trace, chases after the tractor. All she is interested in is inhaling the exhaust fumes. And there's another one who's obviously a bit of a diva who would every night that they went into the stalls would cause a huge rumpus and all the other cows around would be worked up and there would be lots of lowing and noise and kicking and it was a long process getting everybody to bed because this one cow didn't want to go in. And one night she was particularly muddy. She was, you know, had mud all the way up her what would you call that? Hard leg. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a special term. Anyhow, and they decided to just sponge her down that night. And after they'd sponged her down, she went in as happy and calmly as you please. So the next night they thought, well, let's let's try it again. So all she wants is a bath and a little bit of a foot massage before she goes to bed peacefully. And it's the most uh, – it's in a world of – President's Keeper and Rogue and KPMG Sagas and greater division between people. I can't tell you how much I loved The Secret Life of Cows because it was completely outside of my realm of experience. It was utterly charming and you just adore Rosamond and you love all of her cows and you feel that everything is right with the world when you get to the end and you'll also see it on our fantastic Festive Reads promotion so you can stand a chance to win should you pick up The Secret Life of Cows. It really is wonderful and do yourself a favor if you've got some time now and go and do some research on Rosamond Young's farm and you can have a look at the blog posts and the cow cam. It is utterly wonderful. Now, we're out of time. So just to repeat, everybody who's been listening, all the books that I've spoken about are already posted on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook and then search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And all the books that Tracy's mentioned, I will post sometime during the course of the weekend. So just keep going to the page. Keep looking at it. You can scale through all the books we've done in the past year and a half uh, when you go book shopping and um, until next week good Shabbos and keep reading